Well, turn with me to James chapter 2, uh, 1 through 13. That's our text of study this morning. I just want to begin by telling you something that researchers call the Cupie doll effect. K-E-W-P-I-E. You've probably never heard that before. But it's called the Cupie doll effect. And, and this is named after a baby doll that hit shelves in the early 1900s which boasted of having the ideal physical features of an infant, of a baby. So, you know, bright eyes, that perfectly round head, the the nice chubby cheeks, you know, not too much, not too little. It was was called the Cupid doll. It was supposed to resemble this ideal infant appearance. Well, what is the Cupid doll effect then? Well, as defined by researchers... This is, quote, the relationship between the physical attractiveness of a baby and the level of care that that child receives. Ouch. Yikes. Not good, right? So over over several decades, researchers performed various studies, and this should kind of make you want to cringe a little bit. But what they found was that, quote, infants who are pleasant to look at, they receive more smiles, more kisses, they were held longer, they were, you know, cooed at more, whatever it is you say to an infant, they were bathed, they were fed, they even had their diapers changed more frequently than, quote, unattractive babies. Now, How anyone survived that study, I have no idea. Just imagine being the guy at the door saying, you know, cute, not cute, you know, go there. Like, how they survived those moms, I I don't know, okay? You could look into that on your own. But while sad and I hope somewhat shocking, this Cupid doll effect, the issue of love being tied to looks, to, to external appearances, this is not only an issue with babies, Favoritism, or the biblical word partiality, is the doing or withholding of good based on external appearances. And this is a sneaky kind of sin. This is a prevalent sin. This is a particularly evil sin. This is a sin, partiality, that is so easy to dismiss, it's easy to overlook, it's easy to tolerate. Partiality, we might say, is a respectable sin. In fact, it is so respectable, it didn't even make it into Jerry Bridges' book, Respectable Sins. And I love that book. It's a great book. But I get it. Partiality, or the Bible's word for racism... Discrimination, favoritism, this can happen so quickly, it it can be excused so easily, and yet it is entirely contrary to the heart of our merciful, impartial God. And so this morning, James is going to help us. And James is going to help us not by passing laws that we could legislate this out of our world or our church or our hearts. James is going to help us not to make better yard signs so we can stick them in our front yards or on the coalfield road and everyone can hear and see what a loving church we are. No. James is going to give us some commands this morning. And yet ultimately being freed from favoritism is a matter of your heart. 
Has God's mercy made a transformation in your heart that is evident by the way you look and respond to others? And so our main point this morning is to resist measuring out mercy based on appearances by remembering God's reason for showing mercy to you, which is only grace. And so we'll see three reasons in this text to reject favoritism. And the first is that favoritism reveals a shallow heart. Look at James 2.1. He starts off, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now we're stepping into James chapter 2, but just know that this letter, James, has a, a major issue that he combats throughout, and it's the issue of the church's treatment of the needy, of the poor. Now the letter of James is the, the earliest writing of the New Testament. And the early church, as James is writing, the early church was young, it was struggling, it was vulnerable, and it was particularly vulnerable to this, to, to misguided church growth strategy. You see, the church wanted to grow. There's nothing wrong with that. The church didn't want to remain this obscure little sect that's confused with the fringes of Judaism. The church wanted Christ's name to be known, amen. But the question is, is the path to growing the church by winning or wooing the rich, the famous, and the powerful to our side? It is the path of, to, to growing the church through weak sermons and appealing to the world and hoarding all of our resources to ourselves. Well, not according to James. Look at James 1.27. And just before this text, he says, True religion is, quote, is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And so how does the church grow if we're not relevant to our culture? I mean, how will the gospel spread to the ends of the earth if we focus on the needy and the unimpressive and the poor? Well, the answer is this. That's the only way the gospel has ever spread. Because the gospel is precisely for needy people. Period. You see, Jesus didn't come to call the self-important. He didn't come to call the self-righteous. Who did Jesus come to call? He came to call sinners. In fact, Jesus himself, he came from an unimpressive town. He called unimpressive men. And they preached to the world an unimpressive message. And yet what happened by God's power, the book of Acts says that the world was turned upside down. And so the issue of favoritism or partiality, this is actually a, a central issue to the life of the church. Partiality will rob the gospel of its glory and even stop it in its tracks. And so verse 1, my brothers, James says, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now let's look at the word partiality. As far as scholars can tell... Uh, the early Christians actually created, they coined this word. There is no other use of this word outside in the Greek, uh, outside of the New Testament to this time. 
And the original, in the original language, the word partiality is a two-part, it's a compound word. It actually combines the word for face with the word to receive. And so literally, partiality is to receive a face. And that's not very helpful, but a, a more a better definition would be to, to look at someone's external appearance and then decide on that basis how to treat them, whether to receive them, whether that be looking at their ethnicity, whether that be looking at their age, their skin color, the zip code they live in, their financial status, their academic accomplishments, their employer, and so on and so on and so on. You see, it is our, our sinful tendency to take one glance at a person and slap a value on their soul. But not with our God. Not, not in this faith. You see, it's interesting that the one thing the Pharisees got right about Jesus was that he showed no partiality. Matthew twenty two sixteen says, a Pharisee came up to Jesus and he says, Teacher, we know that you teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Literally, the, the last words in that verse are, for you do not look on the face of man. They knew this about Christ. Whether you were a Jew or a Gentile, whether you lived in Jerusalem or Samaria or Galilee, whether you were rich or poor, sick or well, Jesus cared about souls impartially. You were welcome into his life. Now, repeatedly, the scriptures declare God's impartiality. You know, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. For the Lord sees not as man sees, a man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Even in Acts chapter 10, verse 34, the context is, is Peter is having this ethnic issue in his soul about salvation. Can the Gentiles really be saved? And God changes Peter's heart, you remember. And Peter opens his mouth and says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. You see, we struggle with this issue, but God does not. And let me make it a point to say that if you are here this morning, whether you are a Christian or not a Christian, if you have ever been on the injuring end of favoritism or partiality in any form, especially in the church, you need to know that this is not of God. That is sin. It is contrary to the heart of God, however it was you were treated or ignored or set aside. Well, what's the solution for favoritism? Well, spoiler alert, I believe that the solution to favoritism is actually the end of verse 1. We're going to come back to that later. So let's look at verse 2. I'm going to keep that. I don't want to give it away. Verses 2 through 4, let's, let's read. James gives us an example. Let's read this example. So practical, you can, you can imagine this happening. For if a man, verse 2, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit over here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. 
Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I mean, James gives a hypothetical but very realistic, you can picture this happening scenario. There are two very different looking men, and they're walking into a church gathering. They're visitors. They've never been there before. Seating is tight. They don't know what to expect. And the question is, how are the ushers going to respond? I mean, really, like this sermon is really for the ushers today. This has nothing to do with us. What are they going to do? So what do we know about the first man? Well, the first man who walks in, he's the rich man. He's all done up. He's only wearing the finest. You know, I get excited shopping at Costco. I I love that. Well, this man, he's not touching anything if it isn't tailor-made. The text says he's wearing gold rings. Literally translated, he is a gold-fingered man. His fingers, it's not just one ring, his whole fingers are full of rings. I mean, you have to have sunglasses on just to look at this guy. He is decked out. Well, what about the other man? All all we know about him is he's poor. The the other man's Sunday best is hand-me-down, shabby, smelly old clothes. Well, what's wrong in James' example? Well, of course, What's wrong is the way they treated the rich man. Do you agree with that? Because if so, you'd be wrong. At least partially. See, I want you to think about it. Is it wrong to give a rich man a good seat in the church? Of course not. That's not the issue. Now, they gave him the good seat for wrong reasons, but his seat and the way he was treated is not the issue. What is the issue is simply this. It's to clearly favor and value and give special attention to the rich man while shoving aside, giving no honor at all, snubbing the poor man. That's partiality. You see, if you act this way, what does it reveal but that you have a shallow heart? You have a heart that forgot or has yet to be captivated by the kindness of Jesus Christ to all of his image bearers, particularly the needy ones. You see, when our impulse is to look at someone and immediately judge, instead of looking and whatever we see to love, we have come off the rails of Christianity. We have slipped, as James says, into evil thoughts. We're basing someone's worth to God and therefore their worth to me on a a tattoo or a skin color and not the creator. You see, Christ calls us to be a people who don't evaluate others based on external appearances or what they could add or contribute to me. You know, do you know where that guy works? You know, you should really go sit next to him, you know, during church. It'd be good for you to get to know him a little bit. I mean, do you know how much that girl talks? I mean, like, you might want to avoid her in the hallway because you'd be stuck here all morning if you talk. I mean, do, those, peop- those people are so country. Man, those people, they're so suburb, so Midlothian. Those people love guns, you know. Those people don't like guns. They're the homeschool people. They're the not the homeschool people, and on and on and on. We have all these divisions, and yet it is Jesus Christ who we have in common. Think about this. One day, 
Every believer is going to live in the new Jerusalem. And this might terrify you a little bit, but whether you're a city person or not, one day God is going to put all of us in a city. <laughs> you're going to live in a big city together. Now, there might be some country in that city. I don't know exactly how that's all going to work out, but that should tell us something about our labels and our divisions and our looks, because one day we're all going to live together. God's going to put an end to partiality then. How much more should we not be putting it to death now? You see, personally speaking, sadly, to be honest, too many examples this week flooded my own mind of people that I have held back from loving because they were too this or too that. One of my best friends in college is someone who... First, uh, to my shame, I hesitated to befriend because he is far under five feet tall. Frankly, he's not ever going to win any popularity contest. He's a little odd in some ways. And for a moment, when I first met him, that's all I could see. His height, his looks, his weird dress, how loud he was. It's like, oh, man, can you imagine, like, this guy started clinging around me and showing up at my dorm and going to meals and you know, the girls see me with this guy, like, oh, come on. All right, well, praise God, he taught me so much better. In fact, the Lord blessed me to have this brother as my friend. We would end up spending countless days encouraging each other, studying the word, having these super long games of chess. It, it was awesome. We even got to be in each other's weddings. And yet shallow me, my first glance was to hesitate. What about you? Do you have a shallow heart in this area? Ask yourself, over your years, have you noticed a widening of your heart to those who are different from you, who offer no material advantage to you, whose looks might even be a little uncomfortable to you? Or have you noticed a narrowing of your heart to those who don't fit your little tribe? May Christ have mercy on us. The second point, reason to reject favoritism is because favoritism rejects God's selfless character. And we're going to see this in two big reasons that James gives. And the first is that favoritism or partiality is inconsistent with God's agenda. Look at verses 5 through 7. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now, we need to make something clear up front as you look at these verses. It is not wrong to be rich. Being rich doesn't keep you from God's love. Remember, that's the point. God is impartial. Consider these examples. In Matthew's gospel, we have Joseph of Arimathea, who is a rich man who used his wealth to properly bury Christ and provide him a tomb. 
In Mark's gospel, we meet the rich young ruler who, even though he rejected Christ, it says in the text that Jesus, looking at him, loved him. In Luke's gospel, we meet this other short man named Zacchaeus, who among all those in the crowd that day, Jesus had a divine calendar, a divine appointment to bring salvation to him. And who was he but a wealthy tax collector? Throughout the book of Acts, we meet many believers, such as Lydia, who use their homes and resources for the sake of the gospel. And so you can go and you can make money. I mean, for the gospel's sake, make as much as you faithfully can. Grow it. Give it. But the scripture says, watch your heart. Riches come with downsides. They come with drawbacks. There is a greater temptation for the wealthy in this world to buy into this lie of self-sufficiency. There's a greater temptation for the rich to have wide eyes for rotting things and a dim view of true eternal riches that are only offered in Christ. It is for this reason that Jesus repeatedly warns the wealthy. And if you notice, think about it, Jesus' parables that involve rich people, the rich man never ends up in heaven. Think about that. Consider the rich man in Luke 12, 20. It, It says, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And you might say, wow, it doesn't really sound like Jesus does like rich people. But in fact, the truth is exactly the opposite. For Christ, like a loving father who is warning a child in danger, he is, he is giving warnings not to condemnation, but to awake the rich, to save them. It is his love that gives these warnings. And yet, given this, how clear it is that the poor do have some advantage in God's agenda. For James says, look at verse 5. Has not God chosen those who are poor, that is, materially poor in this world, to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? You see, that truth might be a little hard to swallow to our partial preferences. And yet remember what Paul says of the Corinthians. This truth is everywhere. 1 Corinthians 26, Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. You say, not only in Scripture, but across church history. Perhaps even in your own experience, you have seen God's heart for the poor and their heart for him, and we need to see it. It is a humbling reminder in our lives of what truly matters in this life. Certainly it's not the only way, but it is a way to see it. For, for me, spending a month in another not first world country, what was an unforgettable experience. And it wasn't being with these believers, it wasn't necessarily their poverty 
that struck me, but it was their joy in Christ despite their poverty that made such an impact. It's good to see. And so we can follow James's logic. If you look at the verses, of course, to, to pamper to, to cater to a rich man while spiting the poor man, this is entirely inconsistent with God's agenda. Look at verses 6 and 7. James says in those verses, just look around. I mean, who's throwing you into court? Who's suing you? Who's publicly blaspheming the name of Christ? Is it the homeless man who's just looking for another meal? Is that the church's greatest threat? Is it the immigrant family who's just trying to make a new start in a new area? Is it the widow? I mean, what James is pointing out is it's strange when we show favoritism, especially to those who are flashy and powerful and and all of these things, we are acting precisely opposite of our God. If we're not careful, even we can fall into this. Ignoring the lowly to focus on the famous, the powerful, the big names, you know, the people that we really want to see saved. This makes me think of a few years ago, the famous... Rapper Kanye West walked to a Bible church in California. Now, if you're thinking, you might be thinking Kanye who, maybe you've never heard of that guy before, but just know that in in hip-hop and in the news, and he even, I think, tried to run for president, didn't go very well, but he's kind of a name, okay? And one day, this guy, he started attending a Bible church in California that is not unlike ours. In fact, he started attending Bible studies with the pastor who's a TMS grad. He's even a friend of Rick. Kanye West released an album called Jesus is King. Everything, there was a buzz about it. Everyone was talking about it. And of course, we want him to be saved. We want everyone to be saved. But in the moment, it seemed for quite some time that all anyone cared about was this. Have you heard the album? What did you think of that lyric in that song? Do you think Kanye West is a true believer? Do you think he's really saved? Not, are my kids saved? Not, are my colleagues saved? Not, are my neighbors saved? Not, is anyone that I know in my actual life saved? What I really need to know right now is this. Is Kanye West saved? That's really what matters. Just need to be careful. We need to be careful that favoritism doesn't slide us away from God's agenda. In other words, fighting this will keep us fixated on God's agenda in our lives. Now, a second way that favoritism is against God's character is that it is incompatible with God's law. Look at verses 8 through 11. I'll read. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. 
Now listen, many believers love James for his intensity, and he is, right? Maybe you see that this morning. Uh, this is direct. But every now and then, even James get, lets you catch your breath, and that's verse 8. Verse 8, there, there's a commendation. There's a statement in the positive in verse 8 to these believers. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. In other words, some are getting it right. Some are living out the heart of God's law, which James highlights is the second greatest commandment here. He even calls it the royal law. And if that's so, James says, you are doing well. Continue, excel still more. But James calls this the royal law. Now, we have to understand that, that the Old Testament law is, is actually a quite complicating thing. There's 613 Old Testament commandments. They cover nearly every aspect of Israel's social, economic, and religious life. And, and we might think, well, wouldn't it be nice to kind of get a, a cliff notes, a little summary version of this thing? Well, in fact, that's how the law first came, the Ten Commandments. Of course, we'll see this as we go through Exodus, but even the Ten Commandments themselves were written on two tablets, and they break down into two sections. The first four commandments relate to your vertical relationship with God. The final six commandments relate to your horizontal relationships with others, that is, your neighbor. And so from 613 to 10, even down to 2, Jesus brings it. Matthew twenty two thirty six. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your, your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so along with the first great commandment, the words love your neighbor as yourself, these are monumental words. This isn't something we just be like, oh yeah, I've heard that before. No, these are the summation of heaven's king and his law. A law that reflects God's character. And this is why James calls it a royal law. Because a, a, a royal king has given it to us and it is a summation of what he has to say. Now, as Christians, we are not under the Old Testament law. Okay? The, the, the church is not Israel. Nobody is, is tasked with stoning you to death if you dishonor your father and mother. Right? Don't, don't do that. Don't do either of those things. But as a, as a governing system with its, its sharp teeth to its commands, we are not under the law. The teeth, so to speak, were taken out by Christ. He bore the wrath of our law breaking. And so the Christian is not under the Old Testament law in a sense of awaiting punishment every time we sin. And yet understand the character of God has not changed. The same God who gave the law to Israel is the same God who gives his spirit and his word to the church. And again, he is a God who does not change. And so it should not be surprising then that James can quote an Old Testament command, even the summation of the Old Testament law, and he calls Christians to keep it. And practically, the great question of this command is simply this. 
How do we love ourselves? See, if killing partiality means loving our neighbor as ourselves, then we need to ask the question, well, then how do we love ourselves? I mean, I asked my kids this. Even they knew. This isn't hard. How do we love ourselves? Will we put food in our mouth? That's a pretty loving thing to do. We spend money on things that we want. We care for our health. We save for our future. We talk and we expect people to listen to us. We pray for our concerns. We make time to be in God's word. What's what's the point then? The point is this. You and I, we know how to love. And nobody will give God the excuse, well, I was showing favoritism and partiality because, you know, I just never learned how to love. No. Every time you eat, you prove that you know how to love. The question is, is your proven ability to love pouring out into the lives of others? You see, James is saying, if you're doing well in this area, praise God, don't slow down. Grace Bible Church, whether it is towards one another, whether people at work, family members, strangers, even visitors that come in here, don't wait to love. Don't look and then decide to love. Take the initiative. Say hi. Introduce yourself. I guarantee you that those visiting this church want more than a free book. I mean, I love our visitor announcement, and I'm glad we give out free books, but they want more than free books. They want to be welcomed, to be embraced, to be heard, to be loved. Now, on this basis, going to verse 9, verse 9 says, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, I want you to notice That James doesn't call favoritism, he doesn't call it bad manners, he calls it sin. And in verses 10 and 11, James really leaves us no way out, there's no escape. Okay, the background to verses 10 and 11 was a common teaching among the Jews, among the rabbis. They would get a little clever with the law to try to excuse and cover up some sins. Listen to what one rabbi said, he said, quote, The Sabbath weighs against all the precepts. If they keep it, that is the Sabbath, they are reckoned as having done all. In other words, when it comes to God's law, the rabbis were teaching, some of them, don't sweat the small stuff. Keep the Sabbath and you're good to go. All those other little sins you don't have to worry about. But God says no. Any violation of the law is sin. The law, as as some have compared it to, is like a glass window. If you hit a glass window in one spot, what happens to the entire window? It shatters. How many lies do you have to tell to be a liar? Only one. It only takes one violation of God's law to be before God a lawbreaker, to be guilty, to be a sinner. And so James's point in bringing this up is, is don't hide behind the idea of little sins, as if there's any such thing as a little sin against a holy God. These verses, even verse 11, highlights the seriousness of the sin of partiality. Verse 11, James goes out of his way to mention some big sins. 
murder and adultery. And yet his point is that the same God who said, do not murder and do not commit adultery, is the same God saying, do not show partiality. Because it breaks the same law, it is against the same character. And so you may think it's no big deal. But God, on the other hand, isn't laughing when we tell racially charged jokes. God doesn't understand when elderly people get overlooked simply because they're old. It's not a small matter to God how one treats another who may have an infirmity or a malady or some kind of difference. These things are incompatible with the law of love. Now third, we keep going in verses 12 and 13, we, we reject favoritism because it receives a strict condemnation. And James isn't done. Verses 12 and 13, he says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You see, the test of a transformed life is mercy. Mercy is showing pity and compassion to the misery of another. As one author wrote, Mercy looks not at what man deserves, but at what man needs. And as Christians, we understand mercy because we have been shown mercy. Titus 3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hating one another and and hating others. And then he says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because of his own mercy. And so in verse 12, believers are exhorted to to turn away from partiality. And James' reason here is because even the Christian will be examined one day. The Christian will face judgment. The Bible calls it the judgment seat of Christ. And this is not a judgment to determine our status, like whether you're saved or condemned, but this is a judgment to evaluate your service. How did you respond to the mercy that Christ showed you? And we don't have time to go into that whole teaching and doctrine. You can study 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15 if you like. But the point is this, is that because Christ laid down his life for us, Because he gave us new hearts, because he put his spirit in us, we are now under a new law, and Jesus has a loving expectation that based on his work, his heart work, your life will conform to it. It's not wrong for him to think that. The question is, though, can it? Can your life actually conform to Christ's commands? Well, take heart. The answer is yes. This is what the new covenant is all about. God is freeing you and empowering you by his spirit to obey him. Understand that the freedom we have as believers is not freedom from obeying God's commands, but we are freed to obey God's commands. And that's what true freedom is. As one pastor wrote, he said, quote, man is only free. Now, this is amazing. 
He said, man is only free when what he ought to do is what he wants to do. Who else do you know except the Christian who lives wanting to do what God says he ought to do? You see, this is the the law of liberty. This is an infinite upgrade from that Old Testament covenant. Speaking of the Old Testament law, one author wrote this, quote, he said, the law of Moses required you to love your neighbor, but it did not give you the power and condemned you if you failed. I like to think of the Old Testament law like one of those thermometers that you stick under your tongue, you know, when you're feeling sick and you want to know your temperature. Well, what do you do? You, you get a thermometer and you stick it under your tongue. This is like the Old Testament law. And, and 30 seconds later, it beeps. And what does it tell you? It tells you, oh, I've got 104 degree fever. I'm sick. Well, what do you do next? Do you take the thermometer and then swallow it? Is, is it the cure? Of course not. All all that it does is reveal your sickness. It does not cure your sickness. That's what the Old Testament law, that's how it functions. But in Christ, he actually makes us new from within. Paul says in Romans 6, 17, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart. And so here's the point. The Christian can put partiality to death, not under threat of punishment, but in this joy and this desire of obedience to please the one who saved us. This is Christ's doing in us. But look at verse 13. There is a warning, as so often there is. Verse 13 says, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. James is really just restating what Jesus said many times. And this is a a sobering truth. If we do not extend mercy, then we demonstrate that we have not received mercy. In other words, if the transformation never appears, then it is unlikely it ever happened. To follow Jesus If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you are following a risen king who got down on his hands and knees and washed his disciples' feet. Is that your attitude? Do you desire to go into the unknown? Do you desire to go into the stench, the the mess of people's lives? Because Jesus rescued you from your own. Or do you distance yourself from certain people because, oh, I don't know, they're too this, they're too that, while favoring others? This issue of partiality is truly a window right into our hearts. There will be literally merciless judgment for the one who has no ounce of mercy in them. In other words, the, part, the, the, the punishment for partiality is eternal hell. That's sobering. Regardless of how unimpressive they are, how weird they look, if we are unmoved to love those who are made in God's image, then the scripture warns us, is his spirit in you? Well, what then? What are we to do? 
Maybe, maybe you're convicted. Maybe you failed like I have in this area. Well, wherever you are this morning in your heart before the Lord, we need to turn to Christ. Now, how do we become a merciful people? How do, how do we start fresh on this issue? Is, is it going home and sticking that yard sign, you know, in our front lawn to tell everyone how loving and embracing we are? Is it jumping on some social justice train? To be honest with you, that's the world's easy way out. It costs you nothing to put a sign in your yard. It costs you nothing to retweet somebody online. You see, for the Christian, impartiality is not a matter of saving face with the culture. This is a matter of standing and living right before our Creator. And so if you have sinned in this area, there's an invitation, and it starts with the word repent. Repent of this sin. Look to Jesus. The mercy that overcomes judgment, it flows from a heart captivated by a greater glory. Go back to verse 1. Here's the solution. Verse 1, James said, my brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Literally, just the glory. You see, our only hope for salvation and sanctification, our only hope for putting partiality to death is looking to Jesus. Think about this. How much less tempted am I to be impressed and moved by man's appearances when I'm looking at his appearance, when I'm staring at him, when my eyes are gazing on the one who bent down with a towel and a bowl of water or the one who stooped down to die on a cross for my sin, how can I then withhold mercy? I can't. He's been too good to me to keep this back from others. Turn in your Bibles to Romans 5, 6 through 8. Paul highlights truly the greatest expression of God's glory. And yet he sets it as a display of impartial love. The issue of partiality is right in the midst of these verses. Romans 5, 6 through 8. Paul says in verse 6, For while we were still weak, think, think unimpressive, unattractive, While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 7. Now now notice in verse 7. Notice notice how man plays favorites. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Yeah, we we might sacrifice for people who we like, people who, who are acceptable to us. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Impartial love. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. This is what Jesus did for sinners. This is what Jesus did for you if you trust him. He favored us. 
He laid down his life to rescue us. And so as believers, think about it. The only favoritism that Christ allows is favoring everyone else more than yourself. That's what Jesus did. And he is willing to save you. He is willing to rescue you. He is willing to forgive you and cleanse you even now if you trust him. Let's pray.